Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 32. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com slash rogues. Chapter 54 There can be no other explanation for your success. You have been chosen by the prophets, just as I have been. That's what he said to me. He wanted me to bloody fucking join him, Rusk told Carl. Carl lay in the back of the open-topped wagon that they found in the carriage house, behind the elaborate carriage that Hassad had ridden to Halhamut. A warm blanket covered his battered body. His shoulder rested in a sling, and Severn had splinted his broken leg. Carl chuckled feebly. I can well imagine that you told him to go fuck a spine rat. Javin stood nearby, listening to their exchange as he saddled a calad. Back to, back to the uncomfortable Farley-style saddle, he thought with a grimace. Severn had cleaned the long gash across the top of Javin's head, and wrapped his pate in bandages, even giving him a bit of numb leaf to chew. Warm sunlight spilled through the gaps in the clouds, and goose flesh rippled up his arms. By the gods, the sun felt good today. That's precisely what I was going to say, Russ continued. Except the roof blew off before I had a chance. Of course, one cost of joining him would be that I had to take his highness's head. As you expected. As I expected. Sasha lay in the back of the wagon under her own blankets not far from Carl. She said, Did he say anything about why they did all of this? What did they want? Javin glanced at her, then found his gaze lingering there protectively. She sensed his attention, but she did not meet his gaze. He started right off with some religious gibberish about the Hans of the Gods remaking the world, and he and I sitting on their right hands. A madman, Carl said. No, not a madman. The most dangerous part of this is that he is not mad. He is cold, calculating, and bloody fucking cunning. He does nothing without a plan, plans within plans. He said he wanted us both to see what kind of man the other was. I saw that much. If he survived that tunnel collapse, he's probably the most dangerous man alive. After myself, of course. Your dangerousness is comparable only to your modesty, boss, Carl said. Zamish stood nearby, listening to this exchange, now fully dressed in farthy linen robes. Mackett pulled around, driving the bock-drawn carriage. "'I believe this fine carriage would make a suitable conveyance back to al your highness,' he told Zamish Amphathod Twelfth with a grin. Zamish stepped up to the carriage and turned to Rusk. "'Would you care to join me, Commander Rusk? There are some things we should discuss.' Rusk replied, I am honored by your invitation, your highness, but I will ride with my men. 
I will be more than happy to continue our discussions when we reach Alcott. As you wish, Zamish nodded and climbed into the carriage. And where shall the Lady Wollstone ride? Rusk asked Bella, who stood wrapped in a blanket in the stable door. Bella answered, I would like to ride with Sasha. She and Carl need care. She climbed into the back of the wagon and sat down between them. What about me, my lady? Severn cried. I need care. And me. And me, Horace shouted from the saddle of his collade. He coughed and added, <coughs> My lady. Bella giggled into her hand. I will be happy to care for all of you. A sob found its way into her laughter. I owe you all so much. Fortunately, there had been enough collades in the Halhamut stable for all the Furies to ride, and enough box to draw the wagons and the carriage. Eden and Marden climbed into the driver's seat of the slave wagon. Javin could not see them, but in the back of that wagon were the bodies of Shard, Brick, and Fishbreath. More bodies awaited them back at the High Temple. Docks, Stone, Singer, Brownbuff. Carl and Ost still might die from their wounds. Corkleg was buried in Barmia. Tonin could still lose his hand, Sasha the use of her right arm. Javin looked at his sister and remembered her laughter, how they had played together in the nooks and crannies of Tarnak Castle not so long ago. He saw no laughter in her eyes now, only a haunted darkness. Moments ago, when she had giggled, Javin had thought that perhaps the old Bella remained somewhere within her. Perhaps with time, she would re-emerge from her shell like a tentative tortoise, or else perhaps the scars for experience ran too deep for her to ever fully laugh again. Javin knew that feeling. Tonin climbed into the saddle nearby. Javin asked him, So can you ride all the way down with that hand? Surely you jest, my lord, Tonin replied with a wry twist on the last two words. If we're to be hitting home, I'll hold the reins in my teeth if I must. By nightfall they arrived back in Alcott, and the jittery city guards quickly challenged them. Zamish Amphathad Twelfth immediately exerted his authority, sent word to his father of his liberation, and sent for a contingent of his bodyguards. The presence of the foreigners met with considerable suspicion, but Zamish made it clear to everyone that these foreigners had saved his life. They were his saviors, not his abductors. Even so, a contingent of city guards escorted them. Rusk had decided that they would stay at the High Temple until their departure. It carried such an aura of imposing reverence, aside from the fact that it was highly defensible, that he thought it unlikely any farthing would cause them trouble there. Zamish provided the Furies with a large contingent of his own guards as well, to protect them from the Absothans who might have escaped death, and likely to keep a watchful eye over the treasures ensconced within the High Temple. That night they bathed, they ate, and they rested albeit cautiously in the former nest of their enemy. Javin was happy to see that Fearjack and Ost were relatively well. Fearjack leaped and cavorted and hooted when he saw Rusk and Severn at the head of the procession waiting at the temple gates. Bella asked Javin to stand guard outside her door. He was indescribably weary, especially after the bath had loosened his knotted muscles and drained away the tension in his mind and heart. 
but he did not mind the lack of sleep. It was better than the fear of dreams. Sitting alone in the temple bathhouse, he had felt a few precious moments of true peace and contentment for the first time since before that night in the Red Lily, a lifetime ago. As Bella prepared herself to sleep in a comfortable bed, free of chains and suffering for the first time since that night so long ago, she remained unaware that Javin was ready to fall over from exhaustion. She kept her eyes down, her smooth brow marred by a single perpetual crinkle. After she had fallen asleep, he went into her room and lay on the stone floor. He put his body against the door, so that any intruder would bump into him, and he went to sleep. He dreamed of feral, frothing, absothen faces, the smell of gunpowder and blood, the thunder of gunfire, and the doomed faces of the furies that had fallen. He awoke in the early morning, feeling ill-rested, haunted by death and the dead. The following day, a massive, regal procession, bristling with arms and gleaming with armored guards, arrived at the gates of the high temple. The most holy priest king of Alcott, Zameth Omphathad Seventeenth, sought an audience with Commander Rusk. Rusk, Zameth, and Zamish met in a quiet, secluded garden on the roof of the central temple, where they could discuss matters privately. They shared kalf and butter-drizzled non-bread and pastries, talking until the heat of the afternoon brought them indoors, where they enjoyed the pleasant waters of the bathhouse and behaved as if they had never been enemies. Throughout the day, Javin glimpsed new facets of Rusk. After the wildness left his eyes and the blood was washed off, after his hair was carefully combed back and his beard properly trimmed, he became a figure completely removed from the obscenity-spewing berserker roaring his rage against the uncaring lightning. He became a sometimes brusque but charismatic statesman, a born leader of men, speaking to other leaders of men, a diplomat with an iron spine. Bella clung silently to Javin throughout the day. He found himself without much to say to her, aside from asking after her condition, which he perhaps did too frequently. Late in the afternoon, she took Javin to the top of the high temple wall. They looked out over the streets. Servants and shopkeepers went about their business, mindful of the imposing force of soldiers guarding the temple gates, but going about their business all the same. Finally, she spoke. You have changed, brother. "'As have you, little sister.' She rubbed at the red circles around her wrists. "'I should think I have. I think I should feel more joy, but I feel only... emptiness.' "'Your spirits will improve when we're away from here, when we can see the harbor of Norgard on the horizon.' "'Perhaps,' she looked away. "'But you... you're more different somehow than I. I thought you were dead. I thought they killed you that night.' Part of him had indeed died that night. His fingers were tight around his forearms. She went on. When I first saw you there, I saw only a brave, ferocious man come to save me. I did not see my brother. I did not recognize you. Are you angry with me? Of course not. Bella edged away from him. Of course not. A lot has happened to both of us. He did not say that his old life had died because of her. He did not say that part of him was angry about that. He did not say that today he felt far older than his years. She noticed that she had absently been rubbing her wrists, so she clasped her hands instead. Her voice was hushed. Something is in your spirit now, something dark. You're more like father now. 
I don't think you'll ever play hide-and-seek with me again. A single tear trickled down her cheek. I don't think I'll ever play hide-and-seek again. Another tear. Javin hugged her against him. Soon you'll have no more use for playing, except with your own children. You'll have womanly things to concern you. I already do, but I miss the garden. I didn't get to see the wisteria this year. But the roses and the fire orchids will be beautiful by the time we return. He expected a smile from her at that, but she looked out over the city, her vision focused within her own mind. Besides, he added, with a sly grin, I still want to see the end of the play. Perhaps we'll have to ask Master Filton for a command performance. She rewarded him with a smile at that, and pressed her face against his chest, hugging him close. Later, alone on the parapet, Javin passed the time watching the city of Alcott thriving around him. Throngs of women with their children in tow, elderly men and women. He thought about what Bella had said. He sensed that he had changed, knew that he had changed. In the weeks leading up to the battle on Halhamut, he had been approaching a wall, a door, within himself, driven toward it by events, by his training, by ever-looming clouds of disaster. In his duel with the man he had once known as Rolf, he had passed through that door. Each of the Furies had passed through a door like that long ago. It was a door known only to warriors like them. Bakers and dock workers and farmers had no idea such a door existed, silent and invisible and painted with blood, with a door jam made of bones and a cleft skull for a knocker. It was a door into darkness, into the realm of Heck, the Dark Sister. She who spawned the three-headed furies, like the ones that adorned the black furies' battle standard. Those who passed through that door lived in a different world from everyday men. Something had been nagging in his mind since they first arrived in Alcott. The suspicion that some momentous truth was right before his eyes, if only he could grasp it. Another throng of women passed below. A lone old man sat in the shade of his doorway, smoking a clay pipe children played. There were no young men. The realization struck him like a bludgeon against a barrel, opening a deluge of images and memories. The city of Alcott was a city of women, children, and old men. The only young and middle-aged men he had seen since they left ship were priests or soldiers. Lectures at the War College had taught him about farthy battle tactics, and he had seen them in practice. The last far the attacks before the ceasefire were little more than ill-armed, screaming waves of terrified or fanatical boys. Desperate hordes upon hordes threw themselves into the teeth of the Cuscan artillery and musket lines. The superiority of Cuscan weapons, with greater range and better reliability, were all that allowed them to withstand the endless hordes of farthy soldiers. There were many stories of how farthy regiments dashed themselves to pieces against Cuscan defenses suffering heinous slaughter, thousands, tens of thousands, but climbed over the mounds of their comrades' bodies until they reached the Cuscan lines and overwhelmed them, driving Cuscan armies to defeat, but at tremendous cost. The cost lay bare before him. The scant few younger men who remained in Alcott were soldiers. Now he realized why the farthy priest kings had, for the first time in decades, 
been willing to discuss the cessation of hostilities. No one remained to refill their ranks. There were no men left to bear a new generation of children upon this multitude of women. Perhaps Fartha as a whole had passed through the same kind of door Javan had. They had seen death. They had seen extinction. They knew it now. And there was no going back. Chapter 55 Javan and Maggot faced each other, both naked to the waist, inside the ring of ropes and barrels on the foredeck of Bella's star. Strips of cloth wrapped their knuckles. Anger smoldered in the depths of Maggot's eyes. Old anger. Deep anger. Javan was the faster, but Maggot was the sturdier, shorter, thick-built and toughened by the same trials Javan had undergone. Bella sat atop a nearby barrel, holding tight to Sasha's shoulder with one hand and watching through her fingers as the two men circled each other. Seersir stood next to Bella, clutching her skirts. Black Furies and sailors surrounded the ring, cheering, hooting, hallooing. Rusk and Captain Nightlighter watched impassively. Carl sat upon a coil of rope, holding his makeshift crutch. Aside from being faster, Javin also knew that he was the more patient. Maggot closed with a flurry of punches. The cheers surged as Javin dodged to the side, twisted, and shoved Maggot face-first into the rope. The onlookers shoved Maggot back into the ring. Rage flared in his eyes, and he lunged at Javin again. This time he went low, under Javin's guard, and grappled his legs, tossing Javin hard onto the deck. Punches flew and connected. Bursts of pain shot through Javin's face, but were subsumed in the frenzy of returning the attack. His own blows landed squarely, painfully. The crowd cheered and the furious blows rained. Twisting limbs, punches, grappling, straining for clear blows, Javin pounded him and pounded him until Javin slithered free of the grapple and they stood facing each other again. Blood dripped from noses and cuts and stained the white cloth on their hands. Javin looked into Maggot's eyes. He knew that Maggot would attempt to do exactly the same thing again, throw some punches and attempt to grapple him down. There was no cunning in Maggot's fighting, only rage. Maggot charged again, leading with fists. Javin dropped to a crouch and swept his leg out in a kick. The sweep kick took Maggot at the ankles and dropped him like a side of meat. He lunged atop Maggot, raining a flurry of hammer blows to Maggot's face, battering through his feeble guard until the guard fell away and his eyes glazed with insensibility. The crowd roared. Gold and silver changed hands. Javin stood over Maggot, unclenching his fists and feeling a vague sense of shame. Maggot had never ceased to hate Javin. This would not help dispel that hate. Maggot lay on the deck and shook his head. Someone threw a bucket of water over him and he sputtered and cursed. He looked up at Javin. That was a foul trick, he said, but there was no more rage in his voice. Nothing foul about it. You fought well, Maggot. Javin held out his hand to help Maggot to his feet. Maggot looked at it for a long moment. A succession of emotions passed through Maggot's eyes too quickly to recognize. My name is Erlus, Maggot muttered. He took Javin's hand, and Javin pulled him to his feet. Javin asked, What did you say? Maggot wiped the blood from his nose and launched a wad of bloody spittle onto the deck. I said, My name is Erlus, but since we're both going to be furies, you can still call me Maggot. Javin nodded. Very well, Maggot. 
He put his arm around Maggot's neck and turned toward Rusk. Rusk stood with his arms crossed. I trust you fools will be able to better get along now. There are no grudges among us. Ever. Do you understand, little codsuckers? The two of them stood at attention. Aye, boss. Captain Nightliner's voice rose. All right, then, you lazy barnacles. Arseholes and elbows. Back to work. The sailors scurried back to their duties. Maggot clapped Javin on the back and walked away. Javin caught Sasha's glance as he turned. She winked at him, and his cheeks flushed even more over the bruises Maggot's blows had left. Bella noted this silent exchange. Bella noticed the silent exchange, and she giggled as she jumped down from her perch. Come, brother, let me clean you up. You mustn't look so ruffled for the ladies present. The weeks of travel back to Norgard brought more smiles from Bella, and each one pleased Javin even more. Those smiles helped drive him to undertake this journey in the first place. At least, that's what he told himself. The wounds of their bodies began to heal, allowing enough peace of mind for the wounds of their spirits to emerge. Javin found himself more sullen than he should be, prone to bouts of anger or simmering unexplained impatience. But he hoped these things would pass in time. The question that most jumped into his mind was which uniform he would wear, the black and silver of the Furies, or the deep blue of House Wollstone. Their journey home took longer, because they stopped in several of the free cities to allow some of the former slave girls to disembark. Some of the farthy slave girls had elected to remain in Alcott. Others had wished to set out for a new life on other shores. Two offered to return to the Rook's Nest and serve the Furies as free women. Some came from the disputed borderlands that had often changed hands during the long war, and those girls wished to return home and hope for a new future. Rusk set them free, each to do as they would, each with a handful of gold and silver to tide them in good stead until they could return to their families or find a place for themselves. Seersir did not wish to return to her family, who had sold her into slavery in Kadath. Bella had asked her if she would come back to Norgard and serve as Bella's maidservant in Tarnak Castle, a free woman. Seersir could hardly contain her joy. Some time after Javin's bout with Maggot, Rusk gathered the three trainees and brought them quietly to Severn in a cabin below decks. Severn had a pot of black ink and a small wooden handle with tiny needles attached to one end. Rusk said, So what's it to be, lads? Do you care to wear the fury? He rolled up his sleeve and revealed the black fury tattooed upon his meaty forearm, with her wings and claws and ferocious visage. The three looked at one another for a moment, stunned into silence. Tonin said, I will, boss. Maggot said, Aye, boss. Javin said, Yes, sir. Rusk nodded in satisfaction. His expression turned to a leer. The sad part is that your training is only beginning. When we get back to the rook's nest, ah, the mountain slopes we will run, the lakes we will swim, ah, the night marches we will make. Heaven, lads, years of heaven.
When they rounded the Cape of Fairhope in the north of Cusca, they encountered a patrol of free Macklin frigates. The patrol immediately closed in, and Captain Nightlighter had no choice but to strike sails and heave to. The House Macklin marines who came aboard were quite belligerent, until Carl asserted his identity as a noble in House Macklin. After the marines had been reminded of their need of politeness in the presence of a noble of their house, not to mention the presence of the children of the Grand General himself, they became a bit more deferential. They explained that all Cuscan naval forces were on high alert, and their vessel matched the description of a notorious pirate ship. Carl requested a meeting with the commander of the patrol, and Rusk, Carl, Captain Nightlighter, and Javin met with Captain Francis Macklin aboard the House Macklin frigate Swallowtail. After hearing their tale, Captain Macklin insisted on escorting Bella Starr back to Norgard Harbor. He explained that Cuska was poised to launch an all-out attack by land and sea into the heart of Fartha. All the great houses were simply awaiting the command. Captain Macklin was visibly relieved that they might not have to go to war again, after all. He was happy to tell Javin that the Grand General was hale and hearty, and had firmly resumed command after some mysterious illness. Javin was pleased to see Bella's spirits picking up, little by little, the closer they came to home. Seersir was a good companion to her, and they talked of girl things and woman things, and he caught the glimmer of a brief giggle, a shade of the girl Bella used to be. Bella looked at Sasha with outright awe, and Sasha enjoyed Bella's company as well, even if she was embarrassed at times by Bella's slack-jawed reverence. For Sasha's part, over the course of their long journey home, her wounds healed and her tart demeanor returned. Whenever Javin thought about her, or was in her presence, which was often stuck as they were in the confined space of a ship at sea, his heart became a mishmash of tingles and warmth. They shared secretive looks and careful, furtive touches, but neither of them wanted to take any further steps. Not yet. Perhaps they were both enjoying the dance. As the wind and sails ate away the leagues from home, Javin noticed that he had been sleeping better. The dreams of chaos and death and fear that had plagued his sleep had diminished. For the first time since he had gone into battle, his spirit started to feel at ease. He was not a coward. He had done his best. Sometimes his best was good enough and sometimes it wasn't, but he had to accept both without shame. His body was harder his mind sharper, and the bond he felt with the men around him stronger than anything except the love of his family. When the familiar horizon of Norgard Harbor finally appeared before them, the mood aboard Bella's star began to rise like the heat of a summer day. The excitement shot through Javin's veins, and he was certain he had never been so glad to see a few familiar rock outcroppings and ship's masts. The familiar purple crowns of the Norda Mountains came into view, with the gigantic snow-capped sentinel of Perrin's Peak looming in the far distance. A giddiness built in him until he giggled, and Bella joined him. Her enthusiasm practically bubbled out of her. The two of them stood at the prow of Bella's star as they passed into the harbor and approached the docks. When Captain Nightlighter trumpeted the command to strike the sails and tie up to the pier, Javin embraced Bella tight, laughing like a schoolboy. They did not send word of their arrival. As the sun set, sixteen black furies quietly escorted Bella Wollstone to the gates of Tarnak Castle. Thirteen veterans and three new members rode Kalad back 
encircling a coach they had hired to carry her from the harbor. Javin dismounted and stood beside Rusk as they waited for the castle gates to open. The door in the main gate opened, and a familiar face in a familiar uniform stepped outside to greet them. Javin stood at attention. Sergeant Morris. Sergeant Morris stared for a moment at the unfamiliar figures, the unfamiliar colors. All of them were resplendent in their new black and silver uniforms. Rusk had had these uniforms made before they ever departed Norgard, and had kept them stored aboard ship with the rest of their gear for just this occasion. Fortunately for the three new inductees, their sizes matched those of the lost with reasonable closeness. The Blue Dragon Sergeant fixed his gaze on Javin with a look of growing recognition. His face split into a wide grin, and he snapped to attention and saluted. "'Why, Lord Captain Javin, sir!' "'It's not Lord Captain any longer, Sergeant. It's Lord Lieutenant now,' Javin said. "'Welcome home, Lord Lieutenant, sir,' Sergeant Morris barked with excitement rising in his voice. "'May I present Commander Rusk of the Black Fury, Sergeant?' The sergeant swiveled toward Rusk and slapped another salute. "'Indeed, sir. A right pleasure, sir.' Rusk returned the gesture. "'A pleasure indeed, Sergeant.' Requesting permission to enter Tarnak Castle, Sergeant. I believe we're bringing home someone else His Excellency will want to see. A look of dawning comprehension spread across Morris's face as he looked toward the carriage with the face of a beautiful young woman beaming a smile through the carriage window. Sergeant Morris could not speak fast enough, tripping over his own words. Of course, Commander Rusk. Permission granted. Open the gates! Open! Open the gates! Private Cammon, fetch the Grand General immediately. The sixteen Black Furies surrounded Bella like a pack of vigilant pit wolves. The Blue Dragons had attempted to assert their duties as House Wollstone bodyguards and take Bella into custody, but Rusk would have none of it. The Black Furies have shed blood, left our slain brothers behind, and brought Bella Wollstone over a thousand leagues. I'll be damned if I'll give her into the hands of anyone but the Grand General himself. You would do well to fetch him smartly. His force of will reverberated under every word, and the blue dragons reluctantly relented. Nevertheless, a full contingent of blue dragons surrounded the black furies like sentinels. Javin helped Bella from the carriage, and she clutched his hand on the verge of tears. Two figures emerged from the front door of the house. Janice Wollstone rushed out, his gaze immediately on Bella, Lord Terrell close on his heels. He simply cleared his throat with effort, stood taller, straightened his uniform, and strode forward with barely restrained speed. Bella sobbed and threw herself toward him. When she threw her arms around him, he could no longer restrain himself. He laughed with moistening eyes and squeezed her against him. Lord Major General Terrell Wollstone stood watching with strange mixture of emotions. When Terrell spied Javin in his black and silver attire, he raised a curious eyebrow, but held his expression steadfastly neutral. The Grand General and his daughter exchanged quiet, comforting words, dripping with joy and relief. When Bella stepped away, sniffing and wiping her eyes, she said, "'Isn't Javin handsome, father?' Javin stepped forward. An instant of surprise flickered through his father's eyes. "'I didn't recognize you, son,' he saluted. "'Father?' "'Welcome home, Javin,' his father's voice was coarse and dry as he extended his hand. Javin clasped it, and Janice pulled him close and hugged him in a fierce embrace. "'Thank you, father,' 
It is good to be home. A moment's hesitation, then Javin hugged him back. When they released each other, Janice said, What of this uniform? Where are your woolstone colors? Javin pointed at the woolstone crest that he had sewn over his heart, beside the Black Fury insignia. He was the only Fury with a second emblem on his chest. My heart is still woolstone, father, but the rest of me belongs to the Black Furies. Janice Woolstone scowled. Commander Rusk. Rusk's voice was stolid. The man makes his own decisions, Your Excellency. I did all I could do to make him quit. Something silent passed between them. Janice cleared his throat. Perhaps I sound ungrateful, but seeing my son in another uniform gives me a bit of a shock. Thank you, Commander Rusk, for bringing my children home. No thanks necessary, Your Excellency, Rusk said. But Javin noted well the self-satisfied smirk he shot toward Terrell. Terrell stiffened and looked away. Rusk turned his gaze back to the Grand General. I'm sure my lads will be thanking you many times over the next few days, every time they hoist a tankard and squeeze a harlot's arse. Janice scowled. I'll thank you not to use such speech in front of my daughter. Bella grinned. It's all right, father. I doubt there's any milk-breathed, cod-sucking, pus-butted cheese-chewer in the world that is more skilled at squeezing harlot's arses than these men. Epilogue The baker looked at the letter for a long time. He read it over and over, verifying that all the innocuous but deliberate secret marks were present. He looked at the man who had brought it, a young man from his homeland. The young man's secret cant had been clumsy as if he had had insufficient time to practice before being dispatched, but there was no mistaking his purpose. He looked weary from his long journey and nervous at being among so many infidels in the very heart of their power. "'Thank you for this message, brother,' the baker said in their secret cant. "'I am happy to serve you, brother,' the young man said. "'So you are to join our shalat, then?' "'I have been so ordered.' The baker's heart simmered. He had never felt such rage and frustration as when word spread of Bella Wollstone's return. The wild tales of her rescue grew wilder by the day. Every bard and minstrel was singing odes of praise to Bella's beauty and thunderous ballads to the bravery of Commander Rusk and the Black Furies. It all made the baker ill. He had vented his rage in hidden ways. Another spate of unexplained murders had erupted throughout the city, but these held no significance except to vent the baker's rage. All their preparation, all their efforts, the loss of his brethren— all to naught. Ever since her return, he had been waiting news from the master. How could the Black Furies have possibly wrested Bella Wollstone away from the Brotherhood? The tales and songs were grandiose, but vague, without clues about what had really happened. And now this young man, little more than a fresh recruit, had brought him a letter from the master. The baker took a deep breath, let it out. The orders were clear.
Well, this is it, loyal listener. I want to say thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the story. Maybe you're thinking now about the future of the Black Furies. What happens next? Do Javin and Sasha get together? Do they catch Hassad? All I can say right now is that it's at least partially up to you. I'm a writer, and this is my living. If you like what I'm doing, it's important that you support it. And there are two ways for you to show your approval. The first is to go to this podcast's homepage and send a donation. Even better, buy a copy of the book. Better still, share both with a friend and write me great reviews on iTunes and patiobooks.com and wherever you got this from. I have offered this to you for free, and I'm relying on your generosity. That's the way art works, folks. I know you're busy and have tons of demands on your wallet, but I'll bet you've had more fun during our time together over 32 episodes than some nights out, which might have cost a lot more. If the Furies find a following and fans like you demand it, there might well be a new Furies novel storming into your speakers. In the meantime, farewell, and thank you for listening. Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.